Okay, here we go. July the 26th, 2015, lecture discussion number 205 on the Book of Romans. A quick note before we resume uh, our current subject subjects. Uh, last week, or the previous week before today, obviously, Saudi Arabia declared their readiness for the Israeli Air Force to overfly Saudi airspace. And they did that for the purposes of allowing uh, the Israeli Air Force to bomb the Iranian nuclear facilities. And I want you to consider the anatomy of this new reality. What steps did it take? What made the Saudi Arabian government, one of the sponsors of anti-Israel, anti-Jewish propaganda for maybe 50 years, they fund it all. What made them say, we would rather the Israeli Air Force overfly us and destroy Iran than anything else we can consider right now? What happened to cause this? What are the facts there? What revealed condition or set of conditions has led Saudi Arabia, let me repeat, Saudi Arabia to allow the Israeli Air Force to utilize Saudi Arabian airspace for a combat action? That would be equivalent to Russia allowing the United States to fly over Russian territory to bomb somebody. China, for example. What would be the, what would make Putin allow the American military to do that? What would he be afraid of? Clearly the Saudis are afraid of the Iranians. They're, they're willing to accept Israel's military capabilities. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's happening in the Middle East right now. So you ask the obvious question again. How close are we to a total military explosion in the Middle East when the Saudi Arabian government publicly states, declares all over the world, Israel will fly over our airspace? to bomb these Iranian nuclear facilities. They don't keep it quiet. They trumpet it. How close are we to a total military explosion? I think, obviously, uh, very close. And equally apparent, no Middle East country, none, no Middle East country is accepting this vapid Iranian-U.S. nuclear weapons agreement. There isn't one country that thinks this agreement has any validity. None in the Middle East are reacting as if this treaty has value, any value. Every country, all of them, are preparing for full war. All-out war. See, everybody knows something that's basic. Appeasement which is what this treaty is between the United States and the Iranian government. Appeasement, when it is instituted, always results in accelerated aggression. No exceptions. We all learned that in the first grade. And nowhere is the principle of appeasement leading to accelerated aggression more so established than in the Muslim countries. You appease a Muslim country, they will attack you. It's as simple as that. Always has been, always will be, no exceptions. So, 
we're going to learn what handing a psychopathic, cold-blooded killer, or killers in this case, billions and billions of dollars, and on top of that, advanced nuclear weapon systems, what that will do. That will only embolden them. They will become more aggressive, especially when they are fanatical about their intent to initiate a worldwide religious-based struggle. Uh, and fanatical isn't a strong enough adjective. It's a madness. You're dealing with people that are, are irrationally insane, and you're giving them nuclear weapon systems. And billions of conventional weapons, billions of dollars that they can use to buy conventional weapons. So, what's our job? What are we supposed to do about it as Christians? What's he tell us to do? Watch. Watch, therefore. Eyes open. It doesn't get more ominous than the Israeli bombers overflying Saudi Arabian airspace en route to, to, to Iran. I mean, that is an unprecedented event. Okay, that concludes the cliffside, fluffy, wuffy, seeker-sensitive uh, segment. I'm hearing some speed back here. As the visitors flee, I should remind you that uh, uh, we are in Mark 11, 1 through 21, as well as Matthew 21 and Genesis 3, 14 to 19. Specifically, what I'm doing is I'm addressing the cursing of the fig tree. So, I lost one of my pens again. Cursing of the fig tree. And I know it's hard to read. Let me try the blue pen here. Verses are alongside of the parable of the fig tree. That's where we are. The difference between the two and the similarities of the two. Obviously, I am making the case that those are side-by-side events. In other words, we're addressing the cursing of the fig tree in order to unravel the parable of the fig tree, thus enabling us to reconcile, further reconcile Luke 21 with Matthew 24. So it's not this. Is okay. Thank you, Terry. Let me move around here a little bit. Uh, we're having a little feedback trouble, technical difficulty. Are you going to kill 19? Okay, we'll try to go with just the uh, leveler mic, microphone. So what we're trying to do is reconcile, further reconcile Luke 21 with Matthew 24, and then properly place Luke 17 with Matthew 24 as well, which hopefully then allows us to solve Luke 17:32, which, as you know, is remember Lot's wife, so that we will then have a comprehensive, defensible position on the aftermath of the abduction of the bride of Christ. So what I'm talking about uh, in layman's terms is once we figure out what remember Lot's wife is, I believe we'll understand what occurs after the rapture of the church or after the taking of the bride or the abduction of the bride of Christ. At least that's my plan or the plan. And that's where we were last week, and that's where we are sort of uh, this week. Now, recently, so far, I guess, in our meanderous, uh, some would say torturous, okay, some some of you say convoluted path, uh, we have noted the order of Matthew 11. And being list makers, list makers going to list, we made our list last week, and we have very many happy list makers. And I broke our list down into segments. I don't know if it's still on the board or if it got erased. 
it's still a, it got erased. So um, I hope you visualize last week's. Did I even put it on the ta- on the board? I might not have. Who remembers more medicine? But I broke our list down into segments somewhere, sometime, and to make clear the connectivity between God's inspection of the of the temple and His inspection of the fig tree. So I added the cursing of the fig tree to the cleansing of the temple. But I don't call it the cleansing of the temple. That's what they call it, whoever they are. It clearly comes after an inspection. So I have an inspection of the temple first. So an inspection of the fig tree and an inspection of the temple. And I put those two inspections together. And I submit that that alone is enough to establish the symbolism or, if you will, the identity of the fig tree. People always ask, what does the fig tree mean? Who is the fig tree? And some say all kinds of things. And I will tell you the fact that he inspects both of them. God comes and inspects a fig tree and he inspects a temple back to back. That tells you what the fig tree is, that simple fact. That enough. And once I have the symbolism of the fig tree figured out, then that makes Luke 21, 29 through 33, and Matthew 24, 32 through 35. I'm just rattling these off for the internet, folks. And Mark 13, 28 through 37, come clear. We'll get to this in, in the weeks come. All of those then are references to the sign of the wife or the sign of the nation of Israel. So I'm saying to you, the fact that he inspects the fig tree and inspects the temple makes the temple and the fig tree, if not exactly the same, certainly two parts of one whole. I'm on the latter end of that. That they are two parts. And I'll make that case more so in in a moment. And hopefully you remember from last Sunday that Mark 11 begins with Christ giving two disciples instructions to bring him a donkey, right? Go get a donkey. He says to two guys, two of you, go over there and get a donkey. That's how we start. That's how the cursing of the fig tree and the inspection of the temple begins. By go get a donkey, the two of you. And I call that the entry. The entry into Jerusalem. That begins God's entry into Jerusalem. He says, I'm about to, think of it this way. I'm going to enter into Jerusalem, but what we need first is two of you to go get a donkey. That's tied up over there in that uh, suburb, if you will, of Jerusalem. So uh, now we should have questions immediately. How did the donkey get there? Somebody had to tie the donkey there. Who did it? Did the person who, who tied the donkey there, uh, was, did he know that he was tying the donkey there for the purposes of Christ's entry into Jerusalem? In other words, is he in on why the donkey is there? So I want to know who put it there and what his purpose was for putting it there, or her purpose. Somebody did it. How did the donkey get there? And then there was a bunch that Christ says, hey, when you go to get the donkey... Effectively, somebody's going to ask you a question. Why are you taking the donkey? And you're going to say, God wants the donkey. And they're going to go, okay. God wants the donkey. You take the donkey. It's your donkey. Go. 
So who were those that confronted the two disciples? Whatever you do when you start asking questions about the donkey, don't ask, do not ask, never ask, how did God know the donkey was there? That's a giant headfirst dive into the ditch, as you know. Anyway, the entry now is followed by the inspection of the temple. Now, he doesn't think of it the same way we do. I'll call it temple inspection. I made this point last week, and I'll repeat it here because it always causes me lots of problems with the people that name their churches this way. There is no house of God except the temple. So if you call your church the house of God, you have no idea that you are in serious error. There's only one house of God. That's the temple. The church isn't a building. The church is specifically addressed as a congregation. Never a building. So when he talks about inspecting the temple, he's inspecting his own house. And, and, and I, that's what I'm trying to emphasize, the possessive design. God inspects his house. He makes it obvious that he's inspecting his house. He's wandering around it. Christ is wandering around the temple the way an owner wanders around his property. This is my house. I've designed it. It's for me. It's about me. Every piece of it is about Christ. Every single piece. It's a fantastic symbol of Christ. So, after he inspects his house, he then inspects what? I'm going to make a leap for you. After he inspects his house, he goes and he looks at his wife. And he notices that his wife has no fruit. Okay, let me put it this way. After inspecting the, his house, he inspects a fig tree. The two inspections back to back. First his temple, first his house, then his fig tree, then his wife. That's what I'm trying to make you understand in the possessive design. It's both of them are his. The fig tree uh, or whatever the fig tree symbolizes. And I'm telling you that because it's an inspection of the fig tree, then the temple and the fig tree have a relationship. And therefore, the fig tree is also his and that's why I, I put wife, or if you will, nation of Israel. So first he inspects the temple of his, that is his house inside of Israel, and then he inspects Israel. That is what he is doing, and he has the possessive design of that. And if you agree that God is publicly, deliberately, demonstratively examining and canvassing his own house as the possessor of temple, then it becomes conclusive that he is likewise scrutinizing his fig tree, which is his nation of Israel, his people, therefore his wife, establishing then the symbol that is the fig tree. And that's an important conclusion. Once you've established that the fig tree has a relationship to Israel when it is cursed, then you have a, you have it, a relationship with Israel when he's dealing with the parable of Israel. And also it would naturally flow that the temple and the fig tree both inspected. How did they do on the inspection? How was the inspection process? What grade did they both get? 
Yeah, I, what I used to like to tell my kids, we have A, B, C, D, when I'm teaching, we have A, B, C, D, we have F, and then we have G, H, I, J, K. Some of you have M's and Q's. You're a long way from F's. F would be a huge move forward for most of you. Both the temple and the fig tree inspected both found deficient, to be polite, defective, wanting, in extremely poor condition. There wasn't any fruit. He comes back after, uh, after his inspections and he throws out all of the pollution and the perversion that is in the temple. The temple and the fig tree, I, as I said, are two parts. They're two aspects, a cause and effect. The, the condition of the temple is reflected in the nation, or reflected in the wife, or reflected in the fig tree. The fact that the temple is completely polluted and completely the opposite of what God says about salvation. What's going on in the temple has no relationship to God's plan of salvation. What God says is salvation. Salvation to God is free. It is a belief system. It can't be of works. What's going on in the temple is the selling of salvation. That's what's going on, by the way, in the contemporary church today, the selling of salvation. Christ hates it. He says, I hate it. Why does he hate it? Why does God hate works-based salvation? Because it ends in death. There's no such thing as works-based salvation. That is a contradiction in terms. They are not compatible in any form, according to Scripture. So there's a cause and effect, the condition of the temple, that it is a works-based pagan system, is reflected in the fact that the fig tree has no fruit. And note, again, the temple is overturned and the fig tree is cursed. I'm going to say to you they're both cursed. The fig tree is withered. Now what do you do? As soon as you see that the fig tree was withered, what do you do? Peter says, look, the fig tree is withered. So, wow, that's amazing. Because now you get to figure out something. You have an opportunity. He describes what's wrong with the fig tree. It's withered. The leaves fell off. I told you last week, you go right to Adam and Eve where he took the fig leaves off of them. So that's where you'd start. But you'd also pay attention to withered. You'd go find all the other things that are withered. Where's the first place you would go find something withered? Why look, there's a king with a withered arm. There's a prophet. 1 Kings 13. And the prophet... He ends up riding a donkey. Isn't that interesting? I got withered. I got donkey. And the donkey is not torn to pieces. So we'll end up back in 1 Kings 13. I hope you were here for all of that. You know immediately what I'm talking about. If not, hang along. But we're going to stay focused today. We're going to try to move forward. Obviously, the temple and the fig tree have to be considered together, which we're going to do in the weeks to come so that we have a fair understanding. When I say fair, I mean C-. But that's pretty good for us. Anyway, 
That's pretty much where we left off. Touching only briefly on the trap of the Pharisees. Their question was, by what authority are you to do these things? They're effectively asking Christ, by what authority did you take the donkey? You don't have the authority to take that donkey. That implies to me, if they knew about the donkey, and I think they did know about the donkey, I think that that's their donkey. Almost everything that is sacrificially based belongs to the Pharisees, and they sell it in the temple, right? Christ comes along and takes the donkey. God wants his donkey, is essentially what he says. And they give him his donkey, and he goes. What authority did you take our donkey? I think it's what they're asking. What, by what authority did you inspect and overturn the temple? Did they know about the fig tree? By what authority did you curse the fig tree? Makes me wonder whose fig tree it is. Where it was. Did they know about the fig tree? We'll, we'll delve into that and make conclusion eventually. Jesus responds to them. All of those, by what authority have you done these things? You're causing problems. And he says to them, uh, ultimately, I'm not going to answer your question because you don't know. But he asks them the John the Baptist question. Remember that? That's where we were left off. John the Baptist question. That has puzzled theologians for hundreds of years. And after the John the Baptist question comes what? Did you read ahead? The parable of the vineyard owner. Now, none of this is happenstance. It's all following a perfect order. We have the temple inspection, the fig tree inspection, the fig tree, uh, or the overturning of the temple, the fig tree cursing, uh, King the donkey, John the Baptist, uh, following the what, by what authority, and now I have the parable of the vineyard. I'll just call it the parable of the vine, because that is actually Probably close. It is absolutely perfect that I will ask, I'm sorry, that Christ will ask the John the Baptist question and then he will follow it with the parable of the vine. It's exactly what he would do and the parable is just like all of his parables that God does. As he's asking or as he's telling this parable, it's occurring simultaneously. And that's an extraordinary thing to understand about God. When he's giving you a parable, Especially if you're a Pharisee, the parable is happening while he is giving it to you. And so uh, only God can do this. It takes the ability to understand time perfectly. So we're going to read Mark 12 now and see what it is. Are you ready? Here we go. Mark 12. And we'll just go through how many verses? 13 verses and we'll stop. So here's the parable of the vineyard owner. That comes because he inspected and cursed a fig tree. It comes because he inspected and overturned a temple. It comes because uh, he entered on a donkey. It becomes because uh, I have the John the Baptist question. That's why we're now at the parable of the vineyard. So keep them all together, all the pieces together, and the vineyard will make sense to you. Remember, who's he talking to? The Pharisees. So the Pharisees, because they asked him, why did you take the donkey? How come you overturned the temple and inspected the temple? And how come um, you cursed the fig tree? He gives them the parable and the John the Baptist question. 
Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Then he began to speak to them in parables. And here we go. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers, or if you will, tenant farmers, and went into a far country. So once again, we have Christ, we have God saying, I'm the owner of something, I hand it over, and I leave. Go back to the, go back to the Garden of Eden. Same thing. I make something, I hand it over, and I leave. Now can God, who is omniscient and omnipresent, actually ever leave anywhere? No. So this is just an example so we can see how all of this works. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. So here's the guy that planted the vineyard. He built a fence around it. He put fortifications. He dug the wine vat. He hands it over and he leaves. And then when it's time for the harvest, he sends a servant to the vine dressers. What do you think he's wanting? And is he entitled to it? Let me repeat his investment. He planted the vineyard. He built the fence around it. He dug the wine vat. He built all the fortifications and he handed it over. Is he entitled to anything for any of that or does he lose all things? Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another serp- servant, and the, at him they threw stones, wounded in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still, Having one son, his beloved. So Christ is obviously talking about himself here, isn't he? And he's talking about the Pharisees. And he's got somebody is the vine. Who's the vine? See, let me say that really fast. When I do it with my pencil, there it is. You're going to see Israel all the time. I'll cover it again in a minute. Vine, olive tree, fig. Israel. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them. Christ talking about himself while he is doing what he says he is doing. So he has come to them while he tells them the parable. The parable is happening as it is occurring. If that makes sense. Seems redundant. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to their, to them last, last, saying, they will respect my son. Now, some people think that is wishful thinking. But that's God that says that. They will respect my son. Does God have wishful thinking? No. Consider, they will respect my son as an obvious truth. But those vine dressers, when will they respect? This? They will respect my son. Remember, he's outside of time. But those vine, vine dressers, the, but those vine dressers said amongst themselves, 
This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Christ asks. He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? Apparently they had not. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him but feared the multitude for they knew he had spoken the parable about them or against them. So they left him and went away. Okay? Now he gave them that parable because of the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. That's why the parable comes. And it comes because they ask him about authority. There is an order here. I included verse 13 because it, as is always the case, the brood of vipers uh, have set another trap for God. Idiotic as that seems. It's a characteristic of the brood of vipers. That's what they do. It's a basic characteristic. A viper is obsessed with ensnaring God. It's madness. We have common modern equivalents. The one that I get all the time is that God is the author of evil. It's a pharisaical, idiotic trap. It still works today. God is the author of evil, they say, and it has subsequent forms. Uh, One would be a question like this, uh, if you run across it. Why does God cause evil? Or why does God use evil? For example, when you get those questions, the questioner, of course, uh, has attempted to manipulate uh, the target, you, us, me, into conceding the premise. And the premise is, why, and I'm going to take a leap here and I hope you follow me. Why does God e- cause evil? The premise of that statement is, is that death is evil. So, that's their premise. When I get that question, I always respond, or usually respond if I'm awake, Is death evil? Really? I won't concede the premise that death is evil. Why do you assume that death is evil? And if if so, if we have decided that death is evil, why is death evil? What has caused death in the first place, right? That's ultimately the discussion on death generation. Romans 5, Genesis 3, the origin of sin, free will and determinism, blah, blah, blah. My point is, you've got to know what your trap is. You've got to know the trap is being set before you approach it. Study the passage. Understand that the Pharisees are obsessed. They're focused. They're relentless. All they want to do is trap God. That's all they want to do. Now, the problem they have is they don't know he's God. They didn't know that what they didn't know. And you start, when somebody brings you those, these kinds of questions, um, why the fixation? Let's just look at it here. Why are the Pharisees fixated on this? Every conversation they have with Jesus Christ, who is their creator, every conversation is a, is a trap. It's poorly conceived. Again, they didn't know that they didn't know that he's God. So that makes everything they're trying to do poorly conceived. And Christ exposes them simply 
They have spent hours and hours in committee meeting after committee meeting coming up with these questions, and every one of them are slaughtered. And it stuns them. They don't know what to do. The best minds in the world are unable to overcome God. I'm not surprised that they were. But they never, ever stop. And and their, their, uh, their progeny exists today. They never stop. And so I always want to know, how does somebody get like this? This is a psychopathy. It's a psychopathy that comes, its root is hatred. How do you get like the Pharisees? Find a conversation in the New Testament with the Pharisees. Every one of them is the same. It's always a trap. When they're talking to Christ, they are always trying to overcome him with some kind of test. And this consuming hatred sends them to where they are almost uh, singular. They are singular. Anyway, Mark 12 has a reoccurring theme. I hope you recognize it. The owner, the possessor of all things. Genesis 14, 18. Christ is called the possessor of all things. He owns it all. What then are you? Who owns your body? I always love this debate, by the way. I don't love the debate. I hate the debate with the eugenics people. I, but I notice immediately that it's always about who owns the body. You don't own anything. I don't own anything. God is the possessor of all things. You're a, you are someone who has a lease. You think, oh, I've got my stuff. My famous favorite joke, he who dies with the most stuff is dead. He didn't win anything. And it's not your stuff. It's not our bodies. You don't own it. So I have this reoccurring theme. The owner comes. By the way, whose soul is it? It's his too. It's all his. Everything's his. He's got it all. You have, I have, we have collectively nothing. We're renters. That, by the way, is a really good deal. We got a great lease. He wants some fruit. Give me a little fruit. So this reoccurring theme in Mark 12, the owner, the possessor of all things, sends his representatives and they are killed. By the way, this is in all three Gospels. All three Gospels. Luke 20, Matthew 21, Mark 12. Um, that's 20, Luke 29 through 11, Matthew 21, 33 through 46, and then Mark 12. But this theme is there. You'll see it not as obvious as in these, these, um, this particular parable, but you'll see it in the two sons, the parable of the two sons, Luke 15. One son ultimately ends up wanting to kill his father, wanting to kill the father. That's the Pharisees again, the, the wicked Pharisees that will not take the gospel to the, to the uh, second son, will not go to the Pharisees. You'll see it in the unjust servant of uh, Luke 16, the talents, as you know, in Matthew 24, uh, and the two sons of Matthew 21, 28 through 32, just to name a few. So this theme is all over in the Bible. Christ uses it constantly. Christ is the owner. He's the master. He's the overlord. He's the whatever you wish him to be. 
In this case, he's the owner of the land, the landowner or the vineyard owner. And finally, in this particular case, God, after all of the servants are killed and beaten and stoned and sent away empty-handed, God finally sends the second person of the triune Godhead to the vineyard, vine dressers or the vine dressers. God finally sends himself. And what do the Pharisees conclude? Oh, this is an opportunity. We can kill God. Again, they don't know what they don't know. And they don't know that this is God. And now a little rabbit trail here. Some are going to protest that my last statement there. Some will say the Romans and the Pharisees in concert actually succeeded in killing Christ. Very common. You'll hear it every Easter, every Ishtar. Instead of every first fruits. And they use Acts uh, 2.23 as the foundation for their, their argument. But let me repeat. God cannot be killed by an outside force. It's impossible. So if you have that position, you have an impossible position. I suggest that you reread Acts 2.23. And that's certainly appropriate for those who lack a full understanding of exactly, really, who Christ is. Read Acts 2.23 slowly. From now on, this time, if you read it, if you follow my admonition here, read it carefully, word by word, from the perspective that Jesus is always the Lord God Almighty. Recognize right there in Acts 2.32, ten verses later, or nine actually, you have Jesus God there. It is not Jesus, uh, it is just Jesus hyphen God. There is no word in italics in between. He's called Jesus God by Peter. He lets you know who that is. You're not going to kill Jesus God with an outside force. Impossible. Once you understand that most of your Bibles will not have the hyphen, they'll have a, 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 an italic word in there that's not in the text. Get rid of it and put the hyphen. Once you understand that Acts 2.32, uh, this Jesus God is what that sentence reads, then and only then, does Acts 2.23 make any sense? I don't have time for it today. Maybe someday. I understand why Acts 2.23 confuses many. It's unnecessary. Um, we'll get there some other time. Anyway, there is this theme where the owner-master leaves someone in charge who is later found to be wicked, right? And their wickedness is manifested with disrespect towards the owner-master, landowner, vineyard owner, and the lying and the beating of the uh, uh, the lying that they do and then the beating of the owner's representatives and killing eventually the owner's representatives and then eventually culminating with those placed in uh, governance seeking to kill the owner himself. That's how they, it goes over and over and over again. What is of particular interest is the motive this time. Let me reread the motive. This is the air. Come, let us have a meeting. Committee meeting. The owner is coming. Now, they don't know it's the owner, but they know it's the heir. They don't know the heir or the son and the owner are the same yet. They still don't know it, by the way. They will learn. Everybody does. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. That's their plan. Once they find out it's the last one... This is the last one. He's out of prophets. He's out of servants. This is the last one. We kill this one. We got it. Right? 
So pay attention to that. The motive of the wicked, in this case, the lessees or the tenant farmers again. Keep in mind that Christ's parable is directly connected to the cursing of the fig tree, right? Therefore connected to the inspection of the temple and the overturning of the temple to get rid of the works-based or the pagan salvation system. That's a contradiction in terms, as you know. So keep that in mind, all of this connected. Therefore, it's likewise linked to the parable of the fig tree. But for today, let's focus on the withered fig tree. Now we have a vineyard. Once more, vines or vineyards, vine, olive tree, fig tree, three symbols of the nation of Israel. Three symbols that when you put them all together, you get a, you comprise a whole. The wife is the symbol that is the whole. The vine, the olive tree, and the fig tree are the three particulates, if you will, of the whole. So immediately following the fig tree symbol, Mark 11:20, comes the vineyard symbol. Two of the three parts. The only part I'm missing is the olive tree. They're laid side by side. A man plants a vineyard. God is describing himself. God plants Israel. He builds a fence around Israel. He digs a wine vat. Why do you dig a wine vat? What's the purpose of digging a wine vat? What are you expecting? You're expecting grapes from your vineyard. That's why you dig a wine vat to collect the grapes. When you have the grapes in the wine vat, what happens to the grapes? They become juice. So you're getting juice. What are you going to do with the juice? You're going to put it in bottles. goes on today. Juice collected in bottles or jars in this case. What do you do with the jars and the bottles? You distribute the juice. That's the plan. He plants a vineyard. He builds a fence. He fortifies it. He digs a wine vat. He intends to collect fruit juice. Distribute the fruit juice. Now, God assigns stewards to take care of His fruit operation. Where are you in the story? And He withdraws. Or you think He withdraws. He can't withdraw. Why can't He withdraw? He's omnipresent and He's infinite in size. Now, I ask the first obvious question in all of this. Vintage time. Vintage time, what does it represent in this parable? Vintage time is harvest time, as I said. The time that the grapes are collected. The wine vat should be filled with juice. And so God sends a servant. The servant is to collect some of the fruit juice. Or the wine, if you will. That's the owner's portion. The owner wants a portion of the fruit. He makes that very clear in the Bible all the time. And again, that which is due to the owner. The owner planted the vineyard, fenced the vineyard, built the tower, dug the wine vat, wine vat and so he gets a portion. And so, the servant that God sends, the prophet, if you will, that God sends to Israel... The tenant farmers, what did they do to the prophets that God sent to Israel? They slaughtered them. Killed them. 
The ones that live, they send them back to God with what? Nothing. No fruit. Thus the second obvious question. Why did the vine dressers kill the prophets? Or in this case, just keep it in the parable. Why did the vine dressers kill the guys that are coming for the owner's portion? Why didn't they just give them some juice? What's the obvious answer to that? Why not just give the servants some fruit? Now, what you do? Why go to the trouble of killing the guy? Beating the guy to death? Stoning him to death? Why not just give him a bottle of fruit? Send him on his way? Got no problems, right? Why don't they give him fruit? What's your answer? Come on, you can do this. Yell it out. That's exactly right. There is no fruit. None. There's no fruit juice. There's not a drop. There isn't one grape. Where does that take you back to? The fig tree. It had no figs. There's not one single grape in this vineyard. Not one. goes back to the temple. That's why it tears the temple apart. Because the temple is the absolute opposite of the truth. No one is saved by selling salvation. You're only saved by free salvation. It's a belief system, never a work system. It's, it's a mental process. It is never a physical process. Not one grape ever got into that vat. That's why they killed them. Now, keep thinking about why they killed them. The guy is sent by God to do what? Go to the wine vat and get what? Fruit. Bring it back to God. He goes to the wine vat, not one grape in it. So what do you have to do? you got to kill him. Why? Because the rest of the idiots think that they're producing fruit. They think fruit's going in the wine vat. They're so dumb, they don't know that what they believe doesn't produce one grape. I've got to kill the guy, because otherwise you'll tell the other people here, there are no grapes. This is all leading to death. I have billions of people that think that they have, they work in the vineyard. In this world, there's not one grape. Billions of them. And it's the same, as I said, as the withered fig tree. No fruit, none. And they gotta keep that, they gotta keep that from the idiots that are in the vineyard. There's never been any fruit, and there's never gonna be any fruit. So now the third obvious question is now answered. And that is, why is there never any fruit? There's there's no possibility that this system can produce fruit. Fig leaves are stripped in two places in Scripture, right? Mark 11.21, Genesis 3.21. Now we don't have any grapes. And and I will concede that many commentators object to to this position, what's called the no-grape position. I think, however, that the direct connection to the fig tree in Mark 11 and just basic logic makes this obvious. The Pharisees are the brood of who? They are called the brood of who? 
the brood of the viper. Okay? Does the viper, viper have any interest in fruit juice hitting the wine vat? He doesn't want a single person saved. The viper has no interest in allowing a single drop of juice into a single jar. The viper extinguishes fruit whenever he can. He has a counterfeit system that never produces fruit of any kind, ever. And that's the way he wants it. And they are the brood of the viper. Think about the fruit seed, if you will. The, uh, the sower throwing seeds and the blackbirds coming down picking off the seed. Christ makes it clear that the goal of the Pharisees is to annihilate all life. They don't want a single drop of fruit uh, of uh, grape into that wine vat. And we've dealt with this issue often. Why do the Pharisees, Satan, Antichrist, interchange them? Why does Satan seek for all to perish? That's ultimately your question. That's why he doesn't want anybody saved. Why does he seek, though, all for all to perish? That's the absolute opposite, as you know, from 2 Peter 3.9. Understanding why Satan desires that all perish is fundamental. Take time to consider the question. If you haven't already. So, prophet after prophet after prophet is beaten, stoned, and killed. The owner himself now finally comes. This is very important. The planner of the vineyard and the beloved son are the same, as you know. They are one. That's a truth not recognized by the Pharisees. The father and the son are one and the same, Isaiah 9.6. Christ is called in Isaiah 9.6, everlasting father. That's what he's called. It's one of his names as his mighty God, as his Prince of Peace. It's all the same name. Wonderful. He's called Wonderful. He's called Counselor. All of those names are the same. So the beloved Son and the owner, the same. John 10.30, Jesus Christ, the sent Son, the beloved Son, and the Father are one and the same. And I realize the triunity of the Godhood is not taught often today in the church of today. It nonetheless is a fact. Just because they're not teaching it doesn't make it anything else but the fact, the truth. But notice that after the prophet, I now have this fantastic word, last. After all the prophets, I now have the beloved son coming. comes last. The one that comes after the prophet, the one that comes last, is God. Also notice that the owner, planter, by the way, comes twice. First time he comes after the prophets. Second time he comes to destroy the vineyard. Or the vine dressers. Not the vineyard. It's the height of irony that the Jewish people openly, readily admit that the final prophet after Malachi, the final prophet of Israel, the last prophet of Israel is who? They, if I had them all here today, if I had Jewish people here today, they would tell you that Malachi, we had a parenthesis of hundreds of years, and then we had the final prophet to Israel that has ever lived, the last one. Who was he? John the Baptist. Which is why Christ asked them the John the Baptist question. Because the last prophet to the nation of Israel is 
without controversy, without dispute, John the Baptist. And he was what? He was killed. And the one that comes after John the Baptist, the last one, is the beloved son, is the owner of the vineyard. That's why John the Baptist is right before the parable of the vineyard. That's why the John the Baptist question has to be dealt with. The owner himself, the one true heir, is coming next after the last prophet. And he'll come and he'll be rejected and then he'll come again and destroy the vine dressers. Christ, as he always does, is declaring himself to be the planter of the vineyard. Now, I want you again, let's look at the motive of the tenant farmers. Let me reread it. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to to them last, saying, they will respect my son. Let me read it that way. He didn't say, well, maybe they'll respect my son. They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. This is the heir. They knew who he was. In some sense, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. This is the heir. That's, that's a wow. Let us kill him. Huh? If this is the owner, how are you going to kill the owner? You're not going to kill the owner. The owner is a powerful, powerful owner. He is the powerful, omnipotent owner. But look at this, this fantastic, the inheritance will be ours. What? What is that? How do you say that? If we kill Christ, the inheritance will be ours. Think about that logic. See, what is inheritance the symbol of in Scripture? If I said God has promised you an inheritance, Christ has promised you that you will have an inheritance, what is he talking about to you? What is your inheritance? Is it some property in Muldoon? No, it's everlasting life. So, what are they saying here? Let us kill everlasting life, and everlasting life will be ours. That's what they're saying. Let us kill the heir, the one that gives everlasting life, and everlasting life will be ours. If we kill God, we're going to have everlasting life. Who thinks like that? What kind of madness is that? But that's a word for word what they said. Let us kill life itself. How do you kill life? It's impossible to kill life. Now, you will say to me, well, we kill life all the time. No, you don't. You kill this thing that's occurring, this cursed event. Life, we don't have life yet. We will have life soon. Life cannot be killed. But that's what they say. Let us kill the life. Let us kill the air, and everlasting life will be ours. They, Are they insane? Yeah. Short answer, yes. What I want you to do to go away, notice the connection now between fruit and inheritance. Can't spell inheritance without looking at it. Did I spell it right here? Yes, I did. No, I didn't. I did not. No wonder I'm confusing myself. I want you to see 
that fruit equals inheritance. That's why inheritance comes up at the end of that entire parable. Next week, we'll clean it all up. Let the musicians come in the proper order, in the proper pomp, proper circumstance, the proper robes, and sing the last song to which we will all rise.